It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, June 26, 2020. On today's episode, librarians Danielle Belanger, Jennifer Eisman, Mairead Stevenson, and Janine West present You Gotta Read This. On this date in history, June 26, 1976, the CN Tower opened in Toronto. When it opened, it was the tallest freestanding structure in the world at about 555 meters. And in fact, it held that title right up until 2008. Now, looking at the list today in 2020, the CN Tower is ninth tallest freestanding structure in the world. The ones taller are either communication towers like the CN Tower or else they're skyscrapers. It's still the tallest freestanding structure in the Americas, just slightly taller than One World Trade in New York. But if you're old school, you're probably wondering about the Empire State Building. And when it opened in 1931, it became the tallest skyscraper in the world. And in fact, it held on to that title right up until 1973. Today, it's 24th on the list of freestanding structures in the world. Not bad for a building built in 1931. That was This Day in History. And now here is You Gotta Read This, a discussion about books. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's program, You've Gotta Read This, where we will be talking about some new books that we quite enjoyed and wanted to share with you. Hopefully you will like all of them and will give you something to read over the summer. I just wanted to take a few minutes to introduce everyone on the panel. Today we have with us Janine West, Library Director, Danielle Belanger, Manager of Library Programs and User Experience, Marate Stevenson, Collections and E-Services Coordinator, and myself, Jennifer Eisman, Manager of Digital Learning and Resource Discovery. So without any more delay, let's begin today's program, You've Got to Read This. The first book I wanted to talk about is American Dirt by Janine Cummins. Cummins is the author of the best-selling memoir, A Rip in Heaven, and the novels, The Outside Boy and The Crooked Branch. Her novel, American Dirt, is about Lydia Perez. She lives in Alcapoco, where she runs a bookstore and has a wonderful life. While there are cracks beginning to show in Alcapoco because of the drug cartels, her life is, by and large, fairly comfortable. One day, a man enters her bookshop to browse and comes up to the register with a few books he would like to buy. Over time, they strike up a friendship. Javier seems well-educated, he is charming and handsome, and unbeknownst to Lydia, he is also the jefe of the newest drug cartel that has gruesomely taken over the city. When Lydia's husband, who is a journalist, publishes a tell-all profile of Javier, their lives implode with extreme violence. As a result, Lydia and her son, Luca, go on the run, desperate to get out of Alcapoco as quickly as possible with pretty much only the clothes on their backs and a few other small possessions. Thus begins a migrant's journey to get to the border and what they believe will be a better life in the United States. Their journey is filled with many hurdles. They must cross barren landscapes in the blazing sun on foot or brave jumping on the migrant's train called La Bestia, which many people die attempting. They have to evade corrupt police and government officials and experience life in refugee camps along the way. They are dependent on the generosity of local Mexicans, all the while fearing that someone will recognize them and out them to the drug cartels in exchange for money. 
When I read the novel, I thought, I like this book. Some parts made me very sad, and yes, I did cry. I was emotionally engaged with the characters, rooting for the family to survive. But I remember feeling as if something was missing. And then I read the reviews. I have to say that for every positive review, there were many that were negative. All of these negative reviews centered on one major problem. American Dirt is a book about Mexican migrants and author Janine Cummins has identified as white. The author had essentially written a story that was not hers. And according to many readers of color, she didn't do a very good job of it. In fact, as one reviewer said, she seemed to fetishize the pain of her characters at the expense of treating them as real human beings. The story of American Dirt has now become a story about cultural appropriation and about why publishing as an industry chose this particular tale of Mexican migration to champion. It revolves around a question that has become fundamental to the way we talk about storytelling today. Who is allowed to tell whose stories? After reading the reviews, I had an aha moment and I realized what was missing for me. The characters felt a bit contrived in places as if the author was describing them as she thought they ought to be, as opposed to describing them from a place that bespoke firsthand knowledge or experience. This doesn't mean it is a bad book and you shouldn't read it. And I'm no expert on the issue of drug cartels, save for obviously what I see in the news and read in, in papers. Yet I found the story as whole uh, and the description of the events along the way, very believable. If it is not true to life, at the very least, I still enjoyed the writing. In some American Dirt by Janine Cummings was well-written, very descriptive, and tries to honor the experience of many migrants. The second book that I would like to tell you about is, and they called it Camelot, a novel of Jacqueline Bovier Kennedy Onassis by Stephanie Marie Thornton. She is also the author of American Princess, which is a novel of first daughter, Alice Roosevelt. If her first two books are anything to go by, Thornton seems to be very interested in retelling the story of history's women. And They Called It Camelot is a work of fictional biography. The story spans Jackie's life from the, the time she first met Jack to 1979 and the dedication of the JFK Library. The book opens moments before President Kennedy's assassination with Jackie exploring the complexity of the couple's relationship. Thornton then jumps back to 1952 with Jacqueline's doomed relationship with then fiance John Houston and her job as a photo girl for the, West, the Washington Times Herald. She's invited to a party which leads to meeting then Congressman John F. Kennedy, whom she quickly falls for despite knowing he's a womanizer. The novel conveys the many painful episodes in Jackie's life with grace and empathy, including Jack's infidelity, the loss of two children, the violent death of her first husband, and the casual cruelty of her second husband, Aristotle Onassis. The story is told from the first person from Jackie's perspective. By doing this, the author has pulled back the curtain, so to speak, giving the, uh, the reader intimate access to Jackie's thoughts and reactions to all that had transpired during her life. It's always difficult to be true to history and to get into someone's mind, and maybe the story has to be taken with a grain of salt. Not knowing a person intimately Gleaning details from letters, documents, interviews, photos and footage has to be very daunting for an author. I found myself asking, is this true? Is this really what she said or did or even thought? While it may be difficult to know what really goes on in the heart or mind of another, especially a high profile figure like Jackie Kennedy Onassis, 
I felt that Thornton presented us with a unique portrayal of a woman who valued her privacy and kept to herself. It is almost as if Jackie wanted those 1,036 days of JFK's presidency to be remembered and his legacy of hope and service protected for all time. She forgave him so many things and sacrificed so much for his career and legacy, often at her own expense. Who was Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis to herself? A woman who loved a man and protected him, encouraged him, and helped him get everything he wanted. Was it worth it all? We will never know. The book was extremely well researched. I encourage you to read the author's note at the end because it does touch on some liberties that Thornton took and gives you more information about the lives of Jackie and Jack. At the heart of the novel is Jackie's love for and frustration with Jack, who is described as a golden figure. And they called it Camelot represents the idea of resiliency incredibly well. This isn't a fairy tale, but in many ways it represents a romantic time in history. There are sweet moments, but truth is also well represented. Fans of the Kennedy family, as well as historical fiction, will appreciate And They Called It Camelot by Stephanie Marie Thornton. Next up on my list is The Recipe for a Perfect Wife by Karma Brown. Karma Brown is the best-selling author of four novels. Her debut novel, Come Away With Me, was on the Globe and Mail's Best 100 Books for 2015. So... Does the perfect wife really exist? What does that even mean? How about the perfect husband? If I had to create a recipe to describe this book, it would be a dash of Stepford Wives, a cup of Betty Crocker with a smidgen of Big Little Lies, and wine, lots and lots of wine. Told in two timelines by two housewives living in the same house 60 years apart, the juxtaposition of now and then is strikingly similar. In the present day, Alice and her husband, Nate, leave the hustle and bustle of downtown Manhattan and move to the suburbs and purchase a big old house. Alice is feeling a bit lost as she has left her former life behind. And of course, a few lies also start to spring up between Nate and herself and some cracks start to appear in the relationship. When she's cleaning up the old house, she finds a box full of 1950 magazines in the basement, as well as an old cookbook. In an effort to fill up her extra time because she now has nothing to do, Alice begins a quest to find out who it belonged to. The old cookbook actually belonged to Nellie who used to live in the house with her husband Richard in the 1950s. Nellie was an excellent cook, fabulous dinner party hostess, and a fantastic gardener. She seemed to be the epitome of the 1950s housewife. While Alice investigates Nellie's perfect life, she soon realizes that it is anything but and the perfect wife was hiding a terrible secret. As clues begin to unravel about the former owner's life, Alice starts to realize that no matter what the decade or how sweet the recipe, it will take more than baked Alaska and tuna casserole to master the great art of being the perfect wife. The book makes you examine how a woman's role in marriage and society in 2020 has changed since the 1950s, and yet there are still many challenges that are similar. I found it especially interesting how each chapter begins with quotes taken from magazines and cookbooks on the expected behavior and conduct of housewives in the early 20th century. While none of it surprised me, these quotes left me a little bit exasperated, which of course I believe is, the, is intentional on the part of the author. Uh, nonetheless, I appreciated these, I guess I'll call them historical tidbits, because they helped ground the story in its intended subject. 
which ultimately re revolves around heterosexual marital relations and domestic gender roles. An example of the one of the quotes is as follows. After you marry him, study him. If he is secretive, trust him. When he is talkative, listen to him. If he is jealous, cure him. If he favors society, accompany him. Let him think you understand him, but never let him think you manage him. And that's from the Western Gazette in 1930. The most discouraging aspects of this novel is that men are represented as such poor examples of their gender. But of course, that's a whole other conversation itself and one that we probably don't have time for right here. Even though I didn't particularly like Alice at the start of the book, she eventually finds her groove by the end of the novel. I was really unsympathetic to many of her struggles and especially her very selfish behaviors. However, I found that I also felt for her because it was as if she was never able to voice her opinions and she was never given a direct choice regarding certain female issues, like if she really even wanted to have children or not. Both Nellie and Alice deal with real-world issues, which women have been trying to find ways to accommodate for over a century. Karma Brown's signature style remains. It's laced with something sinister and dark. Running parallel to the role of the 1950s housewife is a slightly edgier plot, which I don't want to tell you too much about right now because obviously I'd like you to read the book. Um, I think the author could have easily turned this into a psychological thriller. Last on my list today is The Jet Setters by Amanda Ward. This book was a 2020 Reese Weatherspoon Hello Sunshine pick and a New York Times bestseller. The Jet Setters is about an estranged, dysfunctional, functional, imperfect, perfect family whose baggage goes well beyond the type one takes on a trip. Charlotte Perkins' best friend has just died. A widow of many years who is married to an angry alcoholic, she has three children. Lee, who is an almost famous actress on a break with some severe issues. Gord, a recovering alcoholic who is struggling to tell his family that he is gay and has just proposed to his boyfriend. And Regan, who is married and has two daughters. Her husband, Matt, wants to go on a trip with her, but she wants a divorce. So obviously, we're not dealing with the Brady Bunch here. Charlotte starts to feel as if her life is over and she needs something new in it. So she pens a little erotic short story from when she was a young single woman and submits it to the Become a Jet Setter contest. Surprise, surprise, she wins the, the contest. So she decides to ask her children to join her in hopes of somehow bringing them all together and reuniting the family. The children agree and set sail with all of their bags, both literally and figuratively, and spend the next 10 days traveling from Athens through Rome to Barcelona on a cruise ship. What could possibly go wrong, you ask yourselves? Well, as the cruise progresses, the Perkins family is forced to explore their individual problems and demons. But as old wounds and secrets begin to surface, Charlotte must not only accept and face her children's flaws and love them anyway, but she also must accept her own regrets, which she has carried like heavy baggage from her own childhood and learn to love herself. If you are expecting an entirely light beach read, you'll be disappointed. The novel is not quite a beach read, it's not quite chiclet, and it has enough meat on its bones to keep the reader engaged and emotionally invested in the characters. The author brought up some heavier topics like suicide, alcoholism, and being accepted into this perception of what society wants you to be, and really tackling some of those issues in a lighthearted way. In the vein of The Nest and The Vacationers, The Jet Setters, delves into what a broken family looks like, 
It is funny, yet sensitive and heartbreaking all at the same time. And we can all identify with family crisis of some sort. So those are my four picks for this year's You've Got to Read This. And now I turn it over to my colleague, Danielle Belanger. Thank you very much, Jen. This is Danielle Belanger, Manager of Library Programs and User Experience. Today on my portion of the program, I'd like to share three book recommendations with you. If Only I Could Tell You, a novel by Hannah Beckerman, The Vanishing Half, a novel by Britt Bennett, and Don't You Forget About Me, a novel by Vari McFarlane. The first book recommendation I'd like to share with you is If Only I Could Tell You, a novel by Hannah Beckerman. Hannah Beckerman studied English at King's College in London for her undergraduate degree and at Queen Mary in Westfield in London for her master's degree. She spent 12 years working in television, first as a producer for the BBC and subsequently as a commissioning editor for the arts and documentaries at Channel 4 and the Discovery Channel USA. She lived in Bangladesh for two years, working for the BBC World Service Trust. She's now a full-time author and journalist, as well as book critic and features writer for The Observer, the FT Weekend Magazine, and the Sunday Express. She's also a regular chair at literary festivals and events, and has been a judge for numerous book prizes, including the Costa Book Awards. The Dead Wife's Handbook is her debut novel, and If Only I Could Tell You is her second novel. She lives in London with her husband and daughter. Here's a brief summary of the storyline. Audrey's dream as a mother had been for her daughters, Jess and Lily, to be as close as only sisters can be. But now, as adults, they no longer speak to each other, and Audrey's two teenage granddaughters have never even met. Audrey just can't help feeling like she's been dealt more than her fair share as she's watched her family come undone over the years and she has no idea how to fix her family as she wonders if they will ever be whole again. If only Audrey had known three decades ago that a secret could have the power to split her family in two and yet also keep them linked. And when hostilities threatened to spiral out of control, a devastating choice that was made so many years ago is about to be revealed, testing this family once and for all. Once the truth is revealed, will it be enough to put her family back together again or break them apart forever? As you can see from the very beginning of the novel, we're only at the book jacket and already the reader immediately gets pulled into wanting to know more about the story in order to find out what this mysterious secret could be. A secret that has created what appears to be an insurmountable family rift. The main three characters in the novel are Audrey, the mother, as well as Jess and Lily, her two remaining grown daughters. The secondary characters include Jess and Lily's daughters, Mia and Phoebe, Audrey's third child and Jess's twin, Zoe, and their father, Edward. The novel is written in the third person and offers multiple perspectives that switch back and forth between the past and the present. It is a satisfying read as throughout the novel there's a buildup to what the family secret is and we as readers feel drawn in and utterly compelled to know why everything has gone so terribly wrong for this family after the untimely and devastating suicide death of Edward, Lily, Jess and Zoe's father. I also found myself empathizing 
empathizing, I'm sorry, with all the characters at different times throughout the book, despite the fact that each had their flaws and were not always the most likable. Audrey's sense of frustration over trying to get her two remaining daughters to reconcile before she dies, I also thought was in and of itself a very powerful storyline. I also thoroughly enjoyed what felt like watching Audrey's transformation as she became more self-assured and determined to succeed in the last stages of her life. For those who enjoy family sagas and don't mind heavier topics being discussed, such as suicide, terminal illness, miscarriage, adultery, and dysfunctional families in general, I think you'll find this read to be well worth the time invested. It's also been said to be a great read for fans of the enormously popular NBC television show, This Is Us. I'll wrap up my discussion of this book by reading an excerpt to best give you a sense of the writing style. It's closer to the end of the book. Chapter 66, Audrey. Audrey scanned the room until she saw them in a far corner, sitting opposite one another at round wood rosewood table. She stood completely still, watching Lily and Jess, wishing she could know what had already been said. Hovering in the doorway, she felt all her regrets lining up behind her lips as if determined to take one final collective curtain call before it was too late. She watched her daughters, her breath unmoving in her chest, her lungs clinging to every last drop of air. And then she saw it. She saw their hands reach across the table, saw them hold one another for the first time in years. It was a moment of complete stillness in which she felt she was watching their estrangement evaporate like condensation rising from a frozen sunlit lake. She caught an unmistakable glance of sympathy pass from Lily to Jess, a look that was received, accepted, reciprocated. Such a simple exchange and yet one which made Audrey's lungs inflate. This Audrey thought as she watched the tears trickle down Jess's cheeks, as she saw Lily reach into her bag to hand her sister tissue, as she watched a conversation resume after decades of unnecessary silence. This was all she wanted, seeing her daughters together, daring to hope that they might be there for each other once she could no, no longer be there for either of them. Okay, so I will continue now with my second recommendation. The second book I'd like to recommend is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Born and raised in Southern California, Britt Bennett graduated from Stanford University and later earned her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan, where she won a Hopwood Award in graduate short fiction, as well as the 2014 Hurston Wright Award for college writers. She is a National Book Foundation 5 under 35 awardee, and her debut novel, The Mothers, was a New York Times bestseller. Her second novel, The Vanishing Half, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. Her essays are featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Paris Review, and Jezebel. Here's a short summary. The Ving twin sisters will always be identical, but after growing up together in a small Southern black community and running away at age 16, it's not just the shape of their daily lives that is different as adults, it's everything their families, their communities, their racial identities. 10 years later, one sister lives with her black daughter in the same Southern town she once tried to escape. The other secretly passes for white and her white husband knows nothing about her past. 
Still, even separated by so many miles and just as many lies, the fates of the twins remain intertwined. What will happen to the next generation when their own daughters' stores, stories I'm sorry, lines intersect, weaving together multiple strands and generations of this family from the deep south of California from the 50s to the 90s, Britt Bennett produces a story that is at once riveting emotional family story and a brilliant exploration of the American history of passing. Looking well beyond the issues of race, the vanishing half considers the lasting influence of the past as it shapes a person's decisions, desires, and expectations, and explores some of the multiple reasons and realms in which people sometimes feel pulled to live as something other than their origins. So other characters in this novel include the twins' daughters, Jude and Kennedy. Each daughter lives a very different life given the choice that each of their mothers has made. Much has also been said about the performance aspect and shape-shifting of the different characters within the novel. In essence, it is about people who disappear in search of another life, a better place. It also scratches upon the pitfalls of a sort of in-between, perjury-like world carefully negotiating the present while beating back the past. As you can hear from the few details I've offered in the summary, there's a lot to cover in this novel. So I will now leave you with an excerpt from the beginning of the book. The morning one of the lost twins returned to Mallard, Lulabon ran down to the diner to break the news. And even now, many years later, everyone remembers the shock of sweaty Lou pushing through the glass door chest heaving, neckline darkened with his own effort. The barely awake customers clamored around him, 10 or so, although more would lie and say that they'd been there too, if only to pretend that this once they'd witnessed something truly exciting. In that little farm town, nothing surprising ever happened, not since the Veen twins had disappeared. But that morning in April, 1968, on his way to work, a loose spotted Desiree Veen walking along Partridge Road, carrying a small leather suitcase. She looked exactly the same as when she'd left at 16. Still light, her skin the color of sand, barely wet. Her hipless body reminding him of a branch caught in a strong breeze. She was hurrying, her head bent, and Lou paused here, a bit of a showman. She was holding the hand of a girl, seven or eight, and black as tar. Blue-black, he said like she flown direct from Africa. Lou's egg house splintered into a dozen different conversations. The line cook wondered if it had been Desiree after all, since Lou was turning 60 in May and still too vain to wear his eyeglasses. The waitress said that it had to be. Even a blind man could not could spot a vain girl and it certainly couldn't have been that, the other one. The diners, abandoning grits and eggs on the counter, didn't care about that being foolishness. Who on earth was that dog child? Could she possibly be Desiree's? Well, who else could it be, Lou said. He grabbed a handful of napkins from the dispenser, dabbing his damp forehead. Maybe it's an orphan that got took in. I just don't see how nothing that black could have come out of Desiree. Desiree seemed like the type who would take in an orphan to you? Of course she didn't, she was a selfish girl. If they remembered anything about Desiree, it was that, and most didn't recall much more. The twins had been gone 14 years, nearly as long as anyone had ever known them. 
Banished from bed after the Founders' Day dance while their mother slept right down the hall. One morning, the twins crowded in front of their bathroom mirror, four identical girls fussing with their hair. The next, the bed was empty, the covers pulled back, like any other day, taut when Stella made it, crumpled when Desiree did. The town spent all morning searching for them, calling their names through the woods, wondering stupidly if they'd been taken. Their disappearance seemed as sudden as the rapture. All of Mallard, the sinners left behind. Naturally, the truth was neither sinister nor mystical. The twins soon surfaced in New Orleans, selfish girls running from responsibility. They wouldn't stay away very long. City living would tire them out. They'd run out of money and come sniffling back to their mother's porch, but they never returned again. Instead, after a year, the twins scattered, their lives splitting as evenly as their shared egg. Stella became white and Desiree married the darkest man she could find. Okay, now my third book recommendation, very different one, is called Don't You Forget About Me, a novel by Barry McFarlane. Sunday Times bestselling author Barry McFarlane was born in Scotland and her unnecessarily confusing name is pronounced Vari. After some efforts at journalism, she started writing novels in her first book, You Had Me at Hello, was an instant success. She's now written five books and she lives in Nottingham with a man and a cat. At first glance, this book is far lighter than my previous two selections. It's a romance book touted as funny, romantic, heartfelt novel, perfect for anyone who loves Bridget Jones. Bridget Jones, I'm sorry. The premise for this novel is relatively, relatively simple. At the surface, it's about the one who got away. There's a slight twist because the one does show up in our main character's life years after they had us like playing in high school and during a time when Georgina's life, we could just say is less than perfect. Everyone around her insists she grow up, get a real job and move on with a more adult version of her life. She's constantly being judged by her mom and sister who hate the fluffy pink coat they feel she's long outgrown. When we first meet Georgina, she's in a bit of a funk. She gets fired from her waitress job at a subpar Italian joint, and she also finds her boyfriend in bed with someone else. She feels as though she has no choice but to accept when her brother-in-law says he has a connection that could get her work in a new pub. There's only one problem. It's run by the guy she fell in love with years ago. And make that two problems. He doesn't remember her at all but she has fabulous friends and her signature hot pink fur coat. What more could a girl really need? This is a delightfully bubbly, heartfelt read about finding yourself, forgiving yourself and finding love. It also has a twist one wouldn't expect, an important message about misunderstandings and the negative effects of keeping secrets rather than coming clean with what happened in a difficult situation from the start. It's about rethinking our assumptions and presumptions about people and situations in order to see the truth. It's also about being able to confront a traumatic event and accept that it happened in order to have the strength to forgive oneself and become stronger. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of the novel. And the soup today is carrot and tomato, I conclude with a perky note of ta-da, flourish that orange soup doesn't justify. Is carrot and tomato soup even a thing? I said to head chef Tony as he poked a spoon in a cauldron bubbling with ripe vegetable odors. It is now Tinkerbell tits. I don't think Tony graduated from the Rue Academy or the Chime Charm Academy either. 
In truth, I put a bit of flair into the performance for my own sake, not the customer's. I'm not merely a waitress, I'm a spy from the word, world of words, gathering material. I watch myself from the outside. The disgruntled middle manager type man with a depressed looking wife scans the laminated options at That's the Morning. The menu is decorated with clip art of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, a fork twirling earthworms, and a Pavarotti who looks like a Sasquatch having a stroke. He booked as Mr. Keith, which sounded funny to me, although there's an actress called Penelope. Penelope Keith, so it shouldn't really. Carrot and tomato? Oh no, I don't think so. Me either. What do you recommend? I hate this question. An invitation to perjury, Tony has told me. Push spaghetti vongoli on the specials. The clams aren't looking too clever. What I recommend is the Turkish place about five minutes away. How about the arabiata? Is that spicy? I don't like heat. Slightly spicy, but quite mild really. What's mild to you might not be mild to me, young lady. Why ask for my recommendations then? I mutter under my breath. What? I grit simper, an important skill to master the grit simper. I bend down slightly, hands on knees, supplicant. Tell me what you like. I like risotto. Maybe you could just choose a risotto then. Am I overthinking this? But it's seafood, he grimaces. Which seafood is it? It's in a Tupperware with seafood marked on pen and looks like stuff you get at spade in angling shops. A mixture, clams, prawns, mussels. I take the order for the carbonara with a sinking heart. This man has strident feedback written all over him and this place gives both the discerning and undiscerning diner plenty to go at. I hope you enjoyed my three book recommendations and now it's time for me to pass the floor along to our director, Janine West. Hi everyone, happy to be here. Uh, today I'm going to present uh, four books, I think. We'll see how uh, it works out with the timing because I see that we're getting close to a quarter of uh, 15 minutes to the end of the hour. So let me start at least with the first book that I'd like to recommend and it's called Behold the Dreamers and it's by Mbolo Mbwe. So for all those who think that the grass is always greener on the other side, you should read this novel. Set in New York City in 2007, on the eve of the global financial crisis, Behold the Dreamers is a can't-put-it-down, readable debut novel about marriage, immigration, class, race, and the cracks that exist in the American dream. The novel details the experience of two New York City families, one living in the Upper West Side and one living in Harlem, just as the 2008 financial crisis upends the economy. It is the absolutely unforgettable story of a young Cameroonian couple, the Jungas, trying to make a new life in America, and their wealthy employers, the Edwards family. Jende Junga, is a chauffeur and he is hired by the wealthy Mr. Edwards who is in upper management at the Lehman Brothers Company. So the book explores the very complicated relationships that exist between the wealthiest 1% and the people that they employ. When the financial world is rocked by the collapse of the Lehman Brothers, both families' lives are dramatically upended and both 
they're forced to re-examine their life choices. The pursuit of the American dream plays a huge role in this novel. For the Jongas, America is a place of promise, a place where you can be somebody. But the immigration policies are anything but welcoming. For the Edwards, it's about the achievement of wealth and power and the price that they must pay as they desperately hold, try to hold on to it. The novel also explores the importance of family, of working hard, and our concept of home. Ultimately, it looks at what each of us is willing to sacrifice in order to attain the American dream, whether you are in the top 1% or whether you are at the bottom. This novel won the 2007, uh, 2017 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and was named by the New York Times and the Washington Post as one of the notable books of 2016. The novel also, interestingly enough, won the 2017 Blue Metropolis Words to Change Prize, a prize that is given out in Montreal, and was also an Oprah Book Club pick. The author herself, she comes from uh, Cameroons, and she also experienced unemployment during the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, it is a worthy, worthy pick. I encourage you all uh, to give it a try. You will not be disappointed. Uh, my second choice is called Miracle Creek, and it's by Angie Kim. And this was a bit of a surprise. Miracle Creek is a novel that equals part murder mystery, it's part courtroom drama, and it's also an immigration tale. It's really a thought-provoking provoking study of the malleability of truth. And the book is disguised, though, as a gripping courtroom page turner. This book won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel. So it's about the Yu family. Uh, an immigrant family from Korea, also trying to do its best to make it in America, who owns a hyperbaric oxygen therapy tank. I had never heard of this before reading this book. Uh, and they live in a town called Miracle Creek, which is located in Virginia. They administer what is known as HBOT treatment, and I had never heard of this before either, which is said to be a cure uh, for a range of conditions from infertility to autism. It is a very controversial treatment. It is not FDA approved, uh, but it exists all the same. So it is actually a kind of a chamber where people have to enter the chamber and um, you, it sort of decompresses. But in the book, uh, the chamber explodes, two people die, and it's clear that the explosion wasn't an accident. So when the novel opens, um, we're, at, we're in uh, the, murder the murder trial of the mother of a boy who died in the fire. As we come to understand uh, the pressure she had been under as a single mother of a special needs child, um, we kind of figure that it's not quite out of the question that she could be uh, ultimately responsible. But with all the other characters lying so desperately about what they were doing at that particular moment, it can't be as simple as that. With so many complications and loose ends, 
one of the miracles of the novel is that the author ties it up all together and arrives at a very deeply satisfying, although not easy nor sentimental ending. So Miracle Creek uncovers the worst prejudice and the best intentions. It is tense with rivalries and the challenges of parenting a child with special needs. It is definitely a page turner. It is a great summer read. And the book actually draws on the author's own experiences as a Korean American, a formal trial lawyer, and the mother of a miracle submarine patient. This novel is steeped in suspense, which will ignite lots of discussion. So going on to my third choice, um, I want to talk about the novel Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Eferistos. So Bernadine Eferisto is the joint winner of the 2019 Booker Prize and the very first black woman to receive this highest literary honor in the English language. I'm not usually a fan of uh, Booker Prize winner, winners. I find them sometimes overly contrived and overly ambitious. But this novel has definitely changed my mind. Girl, Woman, Other follows the lives and struggles of 12 very different characters, mostly women, Black, and British. They tell the stories of their families, their friends, and lovers across the country and throughout the years. The stories are interconnected, and the author confronts and tackles almost everything under the sun from politics, parenthood, sexuality, racism and immigration, to domestic violence, infidelity, friendship and love. Each character has its own chapter and within the chapter, their lives overlap, but their experiences, their backgrounds and their choices could not be more different. The reader is captivated, captivated by each character's story, saddened when the story ends but eager to meet the next character, most of whom we have already been introduced to in passing in previous chapters. The writing is absolutely glorious, innovative and empathetic, and it is written in a fast moving form containing absolutely no punctuation, a technique which was borrowed from poetry, of course. You'd think that this would be a little bit bothersome, but it's so interesting how quickly our eye and our mind adapts. This is one of my surprise favorite books of the year. I had it on my reading table before, uh, for months before I decided to finally tackle it and I could not put it down. My final book of the afternoon is called The Mountain Sing and I hope I do justice to the pronunciation, but, but the author's name is Noin Fan Kemai. The Mountain Sing tells a multi-generational tale of the Tran family, and is set against the backdrop of the Vietnam War. The matriarch is named Tran Julan, who was born in 1920, was forced to flee her family farm with her six children during the land reform as the communist government rose in the north. Years later, in Hanoi, she lives with her young granddaughter, Hong. The novel goes back and 
forth in time, and we see Julianne as a young daughter, a wife, and a mother, and then as a grandmother. The narrative tra that traces the arc of Vietnam's turbulent and painful 20th century history is steeped in the storytelling traditions of Vietnam. The mountain sing is ultimately heart-wrenching and unrelenting in its depiction, depiction of decades worth of war and conflict about a people who never gave up, no matter how much was levied against them. This is a wonderful and beautiful story um, with all the ingredients that make it uh, captivating. Um, the ending is rewarding a little bit on the sentimental style uh, side, but still it ties everything up nicely and you walk away feeling that you have uh, participated in a great, great read. So uh, without any further ado, I'd like to pass the torch along to Mairead Stevenson, uh, who will uh, introduce you to her favorite reads. Thank you, Janine. The first book I will be discussing today is called Hadley Beckett's Next Dish, a contemporary romance by Bethany Turner. It was published in May of this year. It is an enemies to lovers romance. So what does this mean? It means that the characters start out as enemies and end up falling in love. This romance is also considered clean and wholesome. So there is some kissing, but no sex scenes or swearing. This book is set in New York and Nashville, Tennessee. I've never been to either city, but I imagine they are as different as the two characters in this book. So what's it about? Celebrity chef Maxwell Cavanaugh is known for many things. His multiple Michelin stars, his top rated culinary channel show to the max, and most of all, his horrible temper. Hadley Beckett, host of the culinary channel's other top rated show, At Home with Hadley, is beloved for her Southern charm and for making her viewers feel like family. When Max experiences a very public meltdown, he's sent packing to get his life in order. When he returns, career in a shambles, his only chance to get back on TV and in the public's good graces is to work alongside Hadley. As these polar opposite celeb chefs begin to peel away the layers of public persona and reputation, they will not only discover the key ingredients for getting along, but also learn the secret recipe for unexpected forgiveness and maybe even love. In the meantime, hide the knives. So why did I like this book? This book literally made me laugh out loud. A word of caution, do not read this book in public or you will get people giving you strange looks when you giggle for no apparent reason. If you watch the Food Network, or even if you don't, you'll be giggling up a storm as Hadley and Max go head to head and eventually heart to heart. This book combined my love of reading with my love of good food and I found myself Googling the recipes they mentioned in the book. I will definitely be making tarte à la bouillie, which is a Cajun sweet custard pie. I recommend you do not read this book on an empty stomach, however. You should definitely have snacks on hand. It also gave me a glimpse into the life and mind of a professional chef and what goes into the production of a cooking show. I found this aspect of the book very interesting. I also love the chemistry between the two characters. From the first time Hadley and Max meet, the sparks fly, even though at first it's dislike. Hadley respected Max as a chef right from the beginning, even though he was rude and condescending towards her. 
Hadley is my favorite type of heroine. She's smart and sassy, spunky, but also kind, caring, and generous. I am not normally a fan of the reformed bad boy, but even though in the beginning Max tried his best to keep us from liking him, you end up liking him anyways, because you can see that there's more to him than the narcissistic celebrity chef. It soon becomes clear that, this, that his persona is all an act to get ratings for his show. As Hadley and Max get to know each other, they come to realize that they have been wrong about each other. Both Hadley and Max realize they need to change some part of their life to become the person they want to be. I also enjoyed that they developed a genuine friendship first. I find often in romance novels that the relationship is too quick and the characters fall in love without really getting to know the person first. Hadley Beckett's next dish is a beautiful story of forgiveness and second chances and a wonderful romance that will touch your heart and have you grinning and laughing uncontrollably from beginning to end. Hadley Beckett's Next Dish by Bethany Turner is available on Hoopla. The next book I will be talking about is Tweet Cute by Emma Lord. This book was published in January of this year and is Emma Lord's debut novel. Tweet Cute is an irresistible young adult contemporary rom-com about the chances we take the paths life can lead us on, and how love can be found in the opposite place you expected. Meet Pepper, swim team captain, chronic overachiever, and all-around perfectionist. Her family may be falling apart, but their massive fast food chain is booming, mainly thanks to Pepper, who is barely managing to juggle real life while secretly running Big League Burger's massive Twitter account. Enter Jack, class clown and constant thorn in Pepper's side. When he isn't trying to step out of his popular twin's shadow, he's busy working in his family's deli. His relationship with the business that holds his future might be love-hate, but when Big League Burger steals his grandma's iconic grilled cheese recipe, he'll do whatever it takes to take them down, one tweet at a time. All's fair in love and cheese, that is, until Pepper and Jack's spat turns into a viral Twitter war. Little do they know, while they're publicly duking it out with snarky memes and retweet battles, they're also falling for each other in real life on an anonymous chat app that Jack built. As their relationship deepens and their online shenanigans escalate, people on the internet are shipping them. Their battle gets more and more personal until even these two rivals can't ignore that they were destined for the most unexpected, awkward, all the feels romance that neither of them expected. The writing style in Tweet Cute really worked for me. It's modern, addictive, and it strikes a balance between quick-witted banter and heartwarming realness. This book was very well written, and I was surprised to find out that this was the author's first book. The characters of Pepper and Jack completely jumped off the page for me, and I appreciated how well all of the side characters were also developed. And of course, the play on words with their names, Pepper Jack, was really cute. This story really touched on family responsibilities, expectations, and the pressures that today's teenagers feel. The story was very original and kept me captivated from beginning to end. The plot was well layered and it cover covered several serious topics, but still managed to stay funny and trendy. There was also a plot twist at the end that explained so much, especially concerning Pepper's mom's obsessive focus with the company's social media presence. This book was a modern day high school spin of you, the you've got mail type of storyline. And it was so much fun to read. The banter between these two characters was witty and you could feel the sparks fly between them whenever they were around each other. 
I enjoyed watching them fall for each other and truly connect anonymously on a deeper level as Wolf and Bluebird on the, an online school app that Jack created. Things changed rather drastically for them as they went from being normal high school students to the faces of their respective businesses. And once again, there was also lots of delicious food and tons of baking. I found myself craving grilled cheese sandwiches, macaroons, and monster cake. If you want to know what monster cake is, you need to read the book, or you can find the recipe on the author's website. This cake is something that I'll be making with my kids. Tweet Cute by Emma Lord is available on Overdrive. The third book I will be talking about is Twisted 26 by Janet Ivanovich. And there's no food in this one. Well, not much anyways. Twisted 26, as you can tell from the title, is the 26th book in the Stephanie Plum series and was published at the end of last year. Stephanie's Plum, Stephanie Plum's career has taken more wrong turns than a student driver on the Jersey Turnpike and her life is a hopeless tang tangle. Grandma Mazur is a widow again. This time her marriage lasted a whole 45 minutes. The unlucky groom was one Jimmy Rizzoli, local gangster, Lothario, senior division, and heart attack waiting to happen. Well, the waiting's over. It's a sad day, but if she can't have Jimmy, at least Grandma can have all the attention she wants as the dutiful widow. With some kinds of attention, sorry, but sometimes of a, some kinds of attention are not welcome, particularly when Jimmy's former business partners are convinced that his widow is keeping the keys to their financial success for herself. As someone who has spent an entire career finding bad guys, a set of missing keys should be no challenge for Stephanie Plum. Problem is, the facts are as twisted as a boardwalk pretzel with mustard. So, is this the best book I've ever read? No, but I'll tell you why I included it. Stephanie Plum is like an old friend, and this series is one of my favorite comfort reads. Janet Ivanovich's books are always enjoyable. Her books are somewhat formulaic, but you know what? It works. I laugh, so I like them a lot. She knows how to keep them interesting, and her books are always something I look forward to reading at the end of the day. No matter what is going on in the world, I can always be sure that Stephanie Plum will keep me entertained. After 26 books in this series, they are a little predictable, but sometimes predictable can be fun too. Fans of Janet Ivanovich, like me, know what they're getting with a Janet Ivanovich Stephanie Plum book. An independent, pretty girl, a couple of hunky guys to team up with, and an adventure full of mystery and silly zaniness. Solving the mystery usually involves lots of overwhelming crazy characters, especially Grandma Mazur and Lola, and comical situations. There's a lot of teasing and innuendo between Stephanie and the hunky guys as they work together. But in the end, the mystery will be resolved whether on purpose or by accident. The plot to this book was suspenseful, fast-paced, and held my attention. The ending was slightly unexpected and sets things up nicely for the next book in the series. Twisted 26 by Janet Ivanovich is available in regular print, large print, and compact disc with our no-contact pickup service and on overdrive in ebook format. Before I finish, I'd just like to say, if you love a good romance as much as I do, I will be leading a library romance book club called Between the Covers. Our first meeting is on Monday, June 29th on Zoom, but we still have space. If you would like to join us, you can email me at mstevenson, S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N, at codesaintluke.org. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us today on another version of You've Got to Read This. We apologize for the technical difficulties we had at the beginning. I hope you all enjoyed 
our talks and uh, we'll want to read a few of some of the books we recommended today. If anyone has questions, we will stick around for a few minutes if you want to use the Q&A at the bottom or raise your hand. We'll wait a minute, otherwise we will say thank you and we're all looking forward to seeing you, of course, again in person once we're allowed.